We're now going to have a chat with um, Daniel Swartz. Good morning to you, Dan. Take two steps to the left, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Classic line. There you go. Happy days. So, um, Richard was telling us a little bit about your background, and um, so it's uh, it's a bit of fun. We we love the city wine shop, and um, so uh, yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about about your story, Dan. Corny line there is that. I've been working there for two years, but I've been drinking there for 20. It's, uh, it's an institution of Melbourne. Oh, yeah. And hand on heart, I've been taking every interstate visitor, every international visitor there for 20 years to have a classic chicken schnitzel with Italian coleslaw and a glass of wine, prop yourself up on the bar and, and experience what is the uh, quintessential Melbourne experience of having a glass of wine and a, a wine bar with a great little list of wines by the glass and, and a wall of wine that... Uh, is almost like a kaleidoscope of, a, of an ever-changing wine list and uh, has a nice balance of what uh, the classic wines of, of Australia and Europe are as well as uh, the, the emerging up-and-coming wines. And so you, you're always having the same... Is, it's been on the menu that long, Dan, and I, and I love that. I think that's great, the chicken schnitzel. Yeah, absolutely. I, as I said, I can only reference um, specifically the last two years and the times that I've been visiting, but I don't recall it ever being off the menu. Yeah. <laughs> uh, little little side serve of polenta chips, importantly. And then uh, <laughs> and then the, the beauty of the business also being you have the other areas next door and upstairs with the European restaurant. We've got the Melbourne Supper Club and the level above, which uh, I'm sure you gents and, and those listening might have uh, experienced many a late night in those uh, Chesterfields uh, flicking through that Bible of a wine list and uh, heading to the rooftop bar and seeing not only just enjoying the cocktails up there, but the the view from there in terms of the the Prince's Theatre and the architecture and and likewise the Parliament House and the park across. Mm. Again, quintessentially Melbourne. That that just got me thinking, Dan, and that's that's a great way to start. You're saying you always go city wine shop, have a glass of wine, eat the same thing. I I used to love going to the Gin Palace and and having a few cocktails and then having those chicken sandwiches that they made. They were (laughs) the best, but I always ordered the same thing. Yeah, likewise. When you just uh, took me to a place where uh, a previous work life was uh, out at Flemington Racecourse working with the Peter Rowland team out there, making sure that uh, no one went hungry, no one went thirsty on Melbourne Cup Day. Mm. Their task. And And their uh, chicken sandwiches uh, are pretty good, aren't (laughs) they? Yeah, and Peter was famous for those starting uh, all the way down the, the beach down at Montmorency uh, 40 years ago. I reckon, Dan, that we had this conversation when we used to work together and I was telling you about that and you were like, mate, chicken sandwiches is a Melbourne thing and then you sort of schooled me on it. <laughs> and probably a few things I schooled you on, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of many, absolutely. <laughs> but, yes, absolutely. You know, meat pies, uh, the footy, uh, chicken sandwiches at Flemington Racecourse. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it is iconic, isn't it? Gee, you must have done some some fun events with them. You know, when when clients have you know good sized budgets and um, just some of the stuff you would have seen. You've got any highlights you can think of? Oh, look, whenever they're launching a, a cup, it is uh, for, for the new year. There's always that bit of excitement in the air uh, that, uh, that it's the new season as well. Um, in terms of budgets and and uh, excitement it actually takes me back to growing up in adelaide and studying hospitality there and sepult were doing a classic release where we essentially converted a 
a, a ballroom, a function room, into the sepult drives. So the drives being the, the cellars that mm. Sepult haven't quite famously go for, for multiple kilometres. Yeah. And uh, Ian McKenzie, the, the head winemaker at the time, uh, they had this fake wall built up and he bashed through the wall, which then led through to what was the, the drive. So having these racks of wine and, and fake spider webs all around and lighting appropriately. Um, <laughs> Just the, the coming together beautifully of, of the wine industry and a bit of theatre. That is a good one. What about yeah. Mum? Were they good uh, out at uh, out at Flemington? Do they do some good stuff out there? Well, um, fairly well known in, in the media that uh, the, the birdcage can be the place to be, and uh, yeah, certainly champagne houses have a have a nice little budget for events such as this. Mum being the main sponsor or champagne sponsor of Flemington, always uh, try to outdo themselves year in year out. Mm. And How good are you with that sword? Um, I've, I've had a go. I, I do okay. Uh, I see, uh, as we all see on social media and Instagram these days, plenty of people having a go with it with various things from from barbecue tongs through to a, a teaspoon and, uh, and other artefacts and uh, with varying success. But uh, my, my favourite time actually was with mum out at... Flemington, the best memory of their birdcage was the time that they actually had a swimming pool in the middle of their wow. marquee, <laughs> which was about, I don't know, about three metres wide and probably only about a metre deep and had dancing people in and out of it, of course. And then at the very last day, the chef de car from Mum Didier uh, did a bomb into the pool <laughs> in his suit. And I was a bit worried that he wasn't going to come up because he was a healthy bomb into this metre deep pool. <laughs> He, uh, he came up, arms full in the air, and, and kept dancing with the music. I bet there was a giant roar from the crowd. Didier was an absolute nutbag. He was great fun to work with. Uh, Three-pack a day, man. And, um, you know, he's like, I, I, I can't quit smoking because it'll affect the way that I make champagne. I'm like, whatever you, whatever, <laughs> whatever gets you to bed at night, my friend. Uh, but he, he works for LVMH now, Dan, I believe. He might be more across it than me, but yes, oh. I'm aware he's no longer with Mum. He's, yeah, making the mow- day, he's making the mow it now, yeah. Three-pack-a-day smokers are certainly synonymous through the wine industry as well, historically. Yes, Without yes. stopping some people in, but uh, certainly um, Peter Lehman, I recall, uh, what uh, stewarding some show judging he was doing, and he'd often go for a cigarette break in between brackets, and, uh, and likewise... Um, Max Schubert and, and many others. Mm-hmm. Dan, um, Ross Wilson was telling me this story when he used to run Southcorp that they were sitting in, in, in his office drinking um, Bin 60A, the 1962, just smashing meat pies and smoking darts. And, and then they were like, we should probably drink less of this because uh, there's not much left. I've run out of darts too, so you know, go into town and buy some darts and more pies and go back and we'll, oh, we'll just crack the 71 Grange. Those were the days. <laughs> Indeed. Fortunately, they did stop drinking that 60A because uh, they've left a few bottles still for us to enjoy in this uh, in this era. Have you mm. tasted it? I have been fortunate enough to have had that wine three times, so let's say there's probably a fourth that I don't recall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Lordy, Lord. Hey, speaking of standout wines, we've had a question from Christopher actually about the City Wine Shop, um, and he said, what's... What's an Aussie wine, a standout Aussie wine at the wine shop uh, or city wine shop that wouldn't be as well known, like a little hidden gem he's asking for? Well, I guess there's some, some new emerging producers that uh, 
that are coming through and, and perhaps not so new to some people, but uh, some of the names such as Josh Cooper or the wines from Schmalzer and Brown uh, in yeah. various forms, whether it's their Chardonnay or we've actually had a, a chilled red on by the glass recently from them and uh, some wines to uh, probably seek out. Again, a name that's not too new to some, but Timo Mayer's wines are a really interesting expression mm. of, of the wines he's doing out of the Yarra. So there's some things that fortunately we get access to and uh, and make sure we have uh, part of our promotion of, of local talent. Do you, do you seek things out or do people come to you? I suppose it's a combo of both, but, but is there a big um, focus on finding some of these smaller producers and, and going and, and getting some of their stuff? Yes, absolutely. And so that's, as we know in the industry, an ability to go out to these trade events and these uh, wine expo style things that we get to go to and, and try new producers and see what their wares are like, listen to their stories, importantly, how they're making the wine. Some might have a bit of background having made wine elsewhere. Some are having a crack at it for the first time and and invariably there's there's something good at the end and importantly a, a nice story to go with it but as always it's what happens in the vineyard starts in the vineyard and and the care and the quality of what's accessible to them more often than not when it is a small producer they're they're leasing a vineyard or buying in some fruit mm. and uh, the quality of that's uh, going to be paramount to to the end result but but also relative to uh, the Christopher's question me talking about over the last 20 years going there regularly and taking interstate visitors and international visitors, the wine I always seek out and and try and showcase to, to people is something like Clonakilla Hilltops Shiraz, which mm. is their entry-level wine, but just a great example of Shiraz in a different light uh, to what we might be used to be seeing out of the, the richer Barossa styles or or even here from Victoria, just having the lovely cool climate aspect, the, the white pepper spice and mm. nice balanced fruit. Um, as Jancis, I think, uh, once said about the Shiraz Viognier, the top one from Clonakilla, this is the future direction of Australian Shiraz. Yeah, they are. Well, you, you know, obviously, you know, I'm a boy from Canberra, so we, we love those wines. And uh, it's always one of the, if you want to impress European people, give them a bottle of Clonakilla Shiraz Viognier and follow mm. it up maybe with a Cullen Diana Madeline or a Mount Mary Quintet and... You, you job done basically, Dan. Just in, you know, a little bit further to Christopher's question, you know, some of the things that are trending in wine now, things like more natty things, pet nats and orange wines and that sort of stuff. Does City Wine Store do you resist that there because it's quite traditional, or do you embrace it? What's the? How do you feel about it? We embrace it. There's an aspect where we're traditional, but I guess the tradition is also where that we are a place where people will come to, to seek wine in its yeah. various guises. Mm. And so certainly we've embraced that as part of, importantly, the balance of what we offer. And uh, so certainly having a, a, a pet nap available by the glass, uh, I mentioned before, ha- having a, a chilled red or various other wines. We've got a, a great little wine by the glass at the moment from Arfion in the Yarra Valley uh, called Smokestack Lightning Pinot Gris. <laughs> This is a Pinot Gris that you can't see through the, the glass. It, it's probably the colour of pink grapefruit juice and has wonderful flavours and still has appropriate balance, structure and, yes, there might be a hint of uh, funkiness, shall we call it, that is, is a wine that I 
feel anyone could enjoy. Mm. That's a wine that goes into the what I call DBC category, which is dirty but clean. And, sure. yeah, so when people say to me, oh, I'm looking for something skinsy or whatever, and my first question is how filthy do you want to get, you know? Do you want to, do you want to that, that sort of almost like a, an intro to, which would be something for me like Airlie Bank Skinsy Gris or the, um, or the white that Punt Road do, through mm. right through to the, uh, you know, some of Paul Scorpo's wines, you know, <laughs> which are mm. just super filthy, but fabulous, fabulously filthy. Uh, I like that little DBC. I think that works well for me. So DBC aisle at your Dan Murphy store soon? Well, you know, the thing is, Dan, when I started at, at Uncle Dan's, we didn't have any pet nats and we didn't have any orange wines. Now... I don't think we need to be Blackhearts and Sparrows because they've got the they've got the cor- the category cornered in terms of all the cool things, and that's great, and we love them for that. And that's definitely where one should go and shop for things like that too. But I've got like twenty different pet nets now. Now we, we all know that not all are created equal. So from Cullen Rose Moon, which I think is the pinnacle of what we sell, mm-hmm. down to some stuff um, you know that some smaller producers are making. For us, uh, which I think is really well, all those Vino and Trepido wines are in, and you know the the sort of dirty Lambrusco and things like that. But I think the DBC file would be a good segment. You know, I reckon we should do that. I like yeah. that. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but I sort of like my Chardonnay a bit like that too. Sometimes. Well, interesting you mentioned Chardonnay. That um, Kim was at the um, recently at your city wine shop, um, and he had the Kumo River Chardonnay. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah again trying to, to highlight uh, some some great wines and wine regions of the world those wines from from Auckland made by Michael and his family have uh, really been the, the pinnacle of of New Zealand Chardonnay and and at all three price points uh, from their entry level village wine which you can still get in the mid twenty dollars I think uh, right through to their mates is uh, you know, arguably some of the best Chardonnay you can get anywhere. Mm. Yeah, that twenty-one estate Kumu River. That's that's an absolute corker. That is an unbelievable fifty bucks. Just yeah. forget about it. Unreal wine, unreal wine. But um, growing up in in Adelaide, that it is a bit of a wine centric sort of a place, isn't it, Dan? Is that really, you know, have you had to sort of were you changing your palate as you moved over to Victoria, or did you, do you feel it's evolved? You still go back to some of those old school styles you used to drink, and what do you think the future of those styles are in Australia? A bit of a three pronged question. One, certainly the ability to grow up in South Australia around all those wine regions that are so close to the city, and the ability to visit them and those those regular festivals uh, were a great upbringing into the wine industry. I then did a, a couple of years in Sydney working at Kemenes, which is a, an oh, iconic bottle shop yeah. up there. Bondi. And, and also, yeah. Indeed. And then also worked in a fine dining restaurant called Level 41, which was arguably one of the top three or top five restaurants at the time and got exposed to amazing wines. And interestingly, the association that Sydney diners have, understandably, with Hunter Valley wines, but also Margaret River for one reason or another, mm. um, was a great exposure then for Margaret River. And so working at Kemenes for a couple of years, working at Level 41 for a few years, I moved down to Melbourne thinking, yeah, I know all about wine, and then uh, very quickly realised how much I didn't know about the Australian wine industry 20 years ago or all the various regions and the, the wines that we have here. So very quickly you fall in love with or learn more with cool climate wines, obviously Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and the 
the various other varieties that uh, we have here. So moving on to part two of your question, the, the future of wines that are coming out of all of these areas, I guess first and foremost, we're, we're all experiencing that, that wines are being made to be more approachable in their youth. Mm. And, and I think that's us as consumers uh, commanding that. Uh, there's obviously the, the history of wines that through the 90s and, and perhaps earlier were made in, in a bigger style. Again, driven by perhaps some of the American journalists that were, were commanding that or giving the high scores to, to those styles of wines. Uh, bigger is better, almost. But certainly, stylistically, we've uh, seen that change. So although there might still be some bigger styles of wines coming out of South Australia, certainly approachability of wine is at the fore now and you need to look at what are the wines that are winning the, the Jimmy Watson trophies or, or the various awards around Australia and, and taking out the top gongs. Mm. Invariably, it's more approachable wines and, and leads very easily into talking about Grenache, which is having its time in the sun at the moment. Isn't it? Yeah. And McLaren Vale, you know, um, Peter Fraser, people like that doing some amazing stuff with Grenache. Yeah, lots of producers and, and even, you know, in, in the Rosser curtailing a little bit mm. their style of Grenache, um, Turkey Flat doing a fantastic job there as a as a producer to call out. Yeah, and Janelle Zerk, the Z wines or Z wines or whatever they are, they, they, they've got some access to some some lovely old vineyards. Uh, for me, I, I still think there is a place for that classical style of Barossa Shiraz, but and and you can still get it, um, and they still can sell it really well. But the sort of maybe the sixteen and a half, seventeen percent days are are over, mm. which is probably not such a bad thing. But Dan, another couple of interesting things I know you've done in your career because I know you were mates with Jamie over at Penfold and stuff. Tell us about the trip to New York and and the Grange book and that because that's a that's some that's an incredible kind of achievement and also pat on the back, but also just a really fun thing to do, I imagine. Oh a little bit of right place, right time, but I guess the, the experience that I'd had uh, through working the various places with wine uh, just lined up where I had the opportunity to actually, I was to some extent already heading over there and, and having experience and, and relationships with doing Grange releases with Peter Gago for many years at, at Number 8 Restaurant and then also the association with, with Jamie over as the, the brand ambassador and also a very good friend of mine, Matt Lane, who was the face of Penfolds for America for 10 years mm. and previously the head sommelier at McGill Estate restaurant where Jamie was his assistant. So knowing those two guys and the experience that they'd had with the Rewards of Patients book. So for those that mightn't be familiar with that, it's a, a great thing that Penfolds do every four years where they essentially open one bottle of every wine they've got in their cellar. Mm -hmm. And historically got all the Australian journalists to uh, come and assess the wines as we got a bigger global footprint. We started inviting international journalists and then Penfolds took that to the world in 2012. So where it was all previously done in one place, they actually went to China to do uh, all the back vintage tasting with their journalists with 407 and 707. They went to Germany with RWT and St. Henri and went to New York to showcase and taste with the American journalists the 
Grange and also Canunga Hill to really bookend uh, the, the two Penfold styles. So Jamie and Matt knew all too well the amount of work that's required for that and needed a, a, another sommelier type that knew the product and uh, someone who could absolutely help in terms of tasting the wines and having a reference point mm. and the like. So yeah. I was very fortunate to go there to potentially open and taste a full set of Grange and then serve it to the American media from 1951 through yeah. to, at that time, 2010, it still was embargoed in terms of uh, hadn't been released yet. Yeah. Oh, that's unreal. That's just, yeah, pretty pretty amazing stuff. And because we, you know, I've got the classic vintages in my head, but I've never tasted earlier than 71. So it's kind of one of those things where, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a once-in-a-lifetime, I suppose. Yeah can still visually or, or mem- the memory of tasting the 62 and 64 that still tasted like breweries. Wow. <laughs> right, 64 as well. Yeah. Um, so that just goes to show that the, the ability of these wines to age. And I, one thing I'd always recall, you've referenced 71 Grange, that being the pinnacle of Granges historically, that uh, Peter Gago always said for, for bottles of 71 Grange, bottles that haven't moved over time are the ones that are always tasting the best. Mm. Uh, whereas some that might have changed hands, gone through various cellars, gone through the auction system, unfortunately aren't, uh, aren't showcasing as well. And quite mm. well known for its volatile acidity, that wine. I've, I've probably had five or six different bottles of that, and I've had three absolute perlers and three that were okay. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so. I think how it's salad is obviously you know, a huge factor, especially when you're talking that amount of time. Um, you used to work at MW Wines, um, Dan, and um, did you get to see a lot of amazing stuff that people were storing you know, in their cellar? Absolutely. It was – so we had – climate-controlled wine storage on site, so people bring in their consignments of wine to, to top up their cellars, whether it's their new releases or uh, wines that they've acquired that are aged or as they're moving in, wines that they've been adding themselves to their cellars over a long period of time. But we also had a wine auction once a month, and this is where I got to know Richo and work closely with him, and I know he's referenced this in, in previous radio shows, that... Mm we had the ability not only just to see these wines and, and catalogue them and sell them, but obviously we had the ability to buy them and um, got a bit of a, a staff allowance to, to buy something every month, importantly, for mm-hmm. us to increase our palate. And you'd see these wines at auction, which understandably are cheaper or more affordable than what a current release wine is. And because there is a bit of buyer beware aspect to it, yep. but invariably you'd look at these wines and you go, geez, that looks cheap. Geez, that looks cheap. Geez, that looks cheap. And <laughs> although you might have a little bit of a wine allocation, not speak for myself more than Richo, but you'd invariably be buying a lot more than what you yeah. had planned. First through the uh, the allocated amount. Uh, yeah. Well, I did that. I think I, my uncle's a bit addicted to MW wines. To be honest, I went I went really hard on my first ever auction, and the guys were like, "Yeah, newbie." <laughs> 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 and then after that, I was like. 
There's always another wine. But I do recall very fondly, Dan, that you would pull out the odd Australian bottle of something pretty amazing. And um, one of the first ones where you brought out a 97 Tarawara Pinot Noir because I'd just left Tarawara. Uh, And you also opened a 91 uh, Black Label Cabernet from Wins, both blind, and we got to look at those. And that was part of the learning aspect for me was wine options games and tasting other wines from other people's cellars. Wine options is a great way to use your knowledge and experience and importantly then develop and grow and, and in an environment where you've got about four or five people at the end of the day and uh, I guess our workplace was an environment that at five o'clock, yes, a bottle would get opened blind pretty much most days, importantly for our education <laughs> and uh, the, <laughs> the ability to go through and, and get challenged a little bit and then start to pick up nuances and again, use the knowledge you've had, but then also start to understand from others the, the components in a, in a wine that you're tasting that might relate back to whether it's certain regions, certain varieties, or something that might be pointing it towards coming from a cooler vintage or a warm vintage. And those things start to form your, your library and your memory bank mm-hmm. of, of wines that you know. I think a classic thing that was said to me early on is that you've only ever tasted... 100 wines in your life or even less, then that's the only reference points you've got. You expand that tenfold, then uh, although you increase your library and knowledge, it certainly increases the variability of uh, where you might go with a particular wine that's in front of you. And it's all part of the fun. So let's take our listeners into, without going too hardcore, but I've got a bottle of wine open. It's in a brown paper bag. I pour some wines out for you guys. You have a smell and have a bit of a taste. And then I say, what's my first question that I'm going to give them an option for? Well, I can take you through the almost the, the run sheet. But yeah, that's it. always start with, with whether the wine's from Old World or New World, um, so being either predominantly from Europe or from the Southern Hemisphere, i.e. Australia, New Zealand, America, South Africa. So you're trying to see whether the wine is possibly showing some more savoury characters or a little more fruit forward, um, a little harder to define it that way these days in terms of some of the winemaking styles, but that's the basics of it. Mm. So once you've established whether it's from Europe or, or from from here, then uh, you, you drill down whether it's the country of Europe uh, or whatever uh, state it might be from Australia. Pretty early on, you'd, you'd chuck in a variety option as well. So... And let's say this brown paper bag wine, Rich, is a, is a red. So, you know, is this wine from Cabernet family, Shiraz family, Pinot family is a, is a broad term there. Mm. And when I'm saying family, so Shiraz family incorporating Grenache and uh, Mouverde and, and those Southern Rhone varieties, Cabernet family being the, those five Bordeaux varieties. And, and so drilling down as to whether this wine, and let's say it's uh, Cabernet, wine that we've established from South Australia. So is this wine purely 100% Cabernet Sauvignon or is it a blended wine? Mm. Trying to look at other aspects as to so how the mid-palate might be tasting in terms of fruit weight. Is there possibly some Merlot to, to fill that classic hole that uh, is known for Cabernet to be having? Once you've established that, that it is 100% Cabernet from South Australia, you can work through the various regions there and then Importantly, once you've established that this is a, a Kunawara wine from the vintages that might be put up then, and let's say 88, 91, or 96, Ooh. then having a little bit of a knowledge of whether some of those vintages are, are, are 
known as good quality vintages or, or lesser quality vintages. And I guess comparing a 91 to a 96, so you'd think a, a 96 would still have a somewhat more fruit weight yeah. uh, or, or a little bit more primary character, where a 91 might be more tertiary and a little softer. And because this wine is a little bit softer and has some good structure, we're going to back ourselves that it is the 91, not the 1988. Yeah, and uh, lo and behold, you come to a little assessment, but importantly, having a bit of fun, perhaps challenging one another a little bit. Why? Why have you called this wine to be from this area or yeah. this variety? Mm. It's often that first one that that old <coughs> that old world, new world one. That when I started on my journey, I found that the most tough one. And you know, I I kind of feel like the tannin structures of old world wines is quite different to Australian ones. That's a but they have a different feel, apart from even the savoury thing. But yeah, that was always that was always an interesting one, but it's a bit bit of fun, Simon. It's always good to do something like that. Do, bit do of a Len f- Evans thing, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Do Do you find it's um, the best way to do the the options is when you get it wrong, you're out, or do do people stay in in the game? I guess it depends on the, the environment you're in. If it is a group of four or five people, then Understandably, it's all part of the education. Unless you're you're playing for sheep stations at the end, then you're bragging rights. Um, it's always you know, bragging rights, uh, isn't it? You'll, uh, <laughs> I think it's it's always welcoming to, to have people still uh, play to some extent, but you can certainly keep record as to well, this person got four of the options right, and this person only got one. Uh, today was a bad day for you, sir. But uh, ma'am, you've um, you've taken the chocolates today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course, then there's there's plastic. Rooms and I've had the. Uh, you mentioned Len Evans there. I was once uh, a member of a, a winery that he was involved in, a, a mailing list member of a winery called Tower Estate in the Hunter Valley. And on a launch dinner, a launch lunch, apologies for, for a particular release of, of four or five wines, it was a room of 200 people and we got served a wine blind. Wow. And it came down to two people and I think it came down to the year of birth of the winemaker was the last option. We'd gone through 15 different things and <laughs> these last two people had gone through five wow. five things together and um, Mr. Chairman, as he was known as, uh, came down to asking the year of birth of the winemaker and the, the wine in question, I think, was Brokenwood Graveyard 2000 Vintage, <laughs> where PJ was the head winemaker at the time. And what? Uh, oh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's great. Birth birth year of the winemaker. That's yeah. I've never thrown that in as an option, but um, you know, maybe I'm not playing with the right people. So, 200 people in a wine options game is quite a lot, Dan. Absolutely. Um, there's clearly going to need to be a bit of honesty involved, but uh, hands on head, hands on shoulders, hands on butt is a, is a good way to go to start. And, and if you are doing it, I've, we host uh, some wonderful events at the. City wine shop and upstairs uh, dinners and tasting events alike up in the beautiful tea rooms part of the supper club and do them for groups of 40. So, yes, having people all stand up, importantly, and then the honour system of people sitting down when they get it wrong and invariably uh, you know, with a, a few people standing and uh, and you see them start to sweat and hopefully have a bit of fun. <laughs> all, that in, all that info is on the City Wine Shop website. I was just going to say, how's, how's the best way to, yeah. to get um, knowledge of all of those? Yes. Our website, there is an ability to join our newsletter and we'll notify you accordingly of the, these events. We do a lot of work with the Gourmet Traveller Wine Magazine or Wine Magazine and, and host events every second month with them. 
as well as having our own uh, an event that I particularly enjoy hosting most most years is a, is a Bastille Day dinner where we'll do five courses of food, 10 different wines, so two wines per course, and again, throw in a bit of a fun of an options game mm. in there as well. And that's uh, city wine st- sorry, citywineshop.net.au for people who want to... Want to get on board right. there? That the Bastille thing sounds like fun, Simon. Yeah. Maybe you should go. Oh, look, it, it all sounds like fun, and and mm. you know, it's what a fantastic place to be working at, you know, for as long as that lasts. Um, and you know, it's it obviously predates you, and it will keep going beyond, you know, <laughs> your your tenure. Um, but yeah, fabulous little uh, little option for, pardon the pun, um, for when you're in the city up that up near Parliament and you know, on Spring Street. Dan, thank you. It's been awesome having a chat and um, obviously your knowledge is, is enormous and um, thanks for answering a couple of those questions too from our listeners.